Good morning. It may be gloomy and cloudy outside, but it is sunny in here. We have the hope of our Savior, we have the Son of God, and we have a bright future. And so it is wonderful to be able, no matter what the weather is outside, to have that joy. We have seven days before the beginning of our gospel meeting. And having just come back from uh, holding a meeting in Shakota, Oklahoma, it was obvious that they had done a lot of preparation and there were a lot of non-Christians there. It makes all the difference. You feel like that time is well spent. Hiram is, uh, should be, Lord willing, we hope that he got to Florence, Alabama to begin a gospel meeting this week. And so we pray the same thing for him. Let's uh, be in charge of the success of this meeting by doing all that we can to encourage others to be present. I, I can promise you that Robert is going to do uh, as good a job as the gospel can be preached. He is a fantastic preacher and uh, is a faithful student of God's word. And so um, this can be life-changing, eternity-influencing for so many. So let's do all that we can in view of, of that event coming up. You know, researchers make it very easy for us to express our displeasure and our disappointment in the folks that are in charge. You think about how people feel about our government right now. It continues, their popularity continues to hover at record low levels. And uh, as we think about one's disposition or attitude toward the government, it's a very strange relationship that we have, isn't it? We uh, have no respect for, so often, those who are in those positions, and we dislike them terribly. And yet, so often, we want them to take care of us. We want to make sure that they meet our needs. It's a great irony that even though we would express our disdain all too regularly, and we live in a country where we can express those opinions freely, and yet so many in our society look to the government to provide a variety of needs. Everything from health care to alleviating poverty and making sure that we're protected as we think about that this is the anniversary of one of the most sobering days in the history of our nation, 9-11. We look to our government to help and to protect us. And yet, I think if you were to ask people on the street, by and large, the rank and file would say, I just don't like them. But really, it's all authoritative institutions in our country. A variety of folks have done research into this to find out how we feel about those who are in positions of authority. And it won't surprise you what I'm about to share with you. But by the way, a noted exception in this is the military. Of all the major institutions of authority, only the military has a higher confidence rating in our society than it did back in 1975. More people feel highly about it today than they did then. But you take all the other authoritative institutions. What is our confidence level with regard to the public school system? 28% say they have great confidence in it. What about the Supreme Court? It's 25%. What about the President of the United States? There is 23% of the people who have great confidence in the man who occupies that position now and it hasn't changed much in the last 15 to 20 years. 11% Express confidence in the TV news. Maybe you thought it was lower than that. Seven percent have great confidence in Congress. What about the institution of religion? As people look at it from a very general sense, 
it won't surprise you that the number is also very low. It's 31% of people who say they have great confidence in the religious institution of our culture and society. That's less than half of what it was back in 1975. And, and really, on one hand, we can see why people feel that way, can't we? There have been, in all of these institutions, there have been scandals upon scandals that have rocked them and have shaken our confidence in them. And there have been is in, incompetence that we seem to see on every hand and blunders and mistakes that are made. That explains part of it. But it also seems to be a reflection on a shift in our culture, our morals and our ethics, that we no longer have respect for authority, just inherently speaking. We just don't like to be in submission to someone, and we don't like others to be in charge of us. But when we think about the idea of authority, sometimes I think what's happened is it's a reflection of our lack of knowledge in the Word of God. Because the Bible makes it very clear that God has instituted authority in several different areas of life. And he expects us to see it and to respond to it in a way that reflects honor with uh, our relationship with him. When we see how God feels about authority, we can look across the spectrum. How does God want us to view those who are in charge when it comes to the government? Well, the most exhaustive passage that deals with this is in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, where we have the startling realization that God has ordained, has established those ruling authorities. And those that exist are ordained by God, and the one that speaks evil against or stands up against the ordinance of God faces condemnation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Peter talks about the various institutions of authority that exist and that we are to be in subjection or submission to them, whether it's the emperor who is over all, that is, the one who's at the top of the government chain, and then the governors whom he sent as a punisher of those that do evil and ones who praise those who do good. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, the same message is given to the people, the Christians who live on Crete, that they were to be in subjection to the ruling authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to every good work. So in every part of the known world in the first century, you have inspired writers who are saying, here is the attitude that I want you to take towards secular government. We remind ourselves that this was at a period of time in which there was great oppression for those who were citizens in the Roman Empire, especially if they were Christians. And yet God had instituted order in society through government. But it wasn't just the institution of government that he highlights for us. There was the authority that he wants children to have toward parents in their homes. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, when he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, that you may live long upon the earth. He is saying there is a hierarchy, there is an authority that exists and it must be respected. And then as we think about the employee to the employer, that there is a submission that is to be observed. Colossians 3 verse 23 and following, that we're to do what's right whether they're looking over our shoulder or not, that we're to be impartial in the way that we exercise ourselves. And then there is how we treat the elderly in our society. This is also a disposition of authority that needs to exist. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Peter says that we are to show deference to those, to be humble toward those who are older than us. 
And the Apostle Paul says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him like you would a father. And the older women treat as mothers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2. And then in the marriage relationship. God has authority with regard to that relationship. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, Wives, be in subjection to your husbands as unto the Lord. When we consider the fact that God has relationships in every sphere of life, that different people have different roles, we come to see what we have seen in the first two lessons, that God has an organizational plan when it comes to the church. There's a way in which he wants us to conduct ourselves in his house, his rules. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Where we have focused our attention in the first two lessons has to do with the character and the qualifications of the men who serve us, who oversee us as elders. A subject that I've not heard addressed nearly so often is, what is our responsibility to our elders? Has God given us, as members of the church where elders exist, has he given us rules to live by? Has he given us ways in which he expects us to conduct ourselves in that relationship? Now, in the first lesson in this series that I preached on the work of elders, the way that we unfolded that lesson was to look at three major passages that deal with the work of elders. This lesson lays out in a very similar way in as much as it seems to me that there are three specific passages that tell us what our responsibility is to the elders. And so I'd like for us in the few moments that we have in this lesson today to look at those passages and to make some observations about those of us who are sheep and our responsibility to the shepherds. The first place that we go is to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 13. A little background about the letter that's written to the church at Thessalonica is that the church had just been established not long before this on Paul's second missionary journey. He goes to Thessalonica and the church is established very quickly and he spends three Sabbath days in teaching in the synagogues and the Jewish resistance is so great that they have to leave immediately and so the Apostle Paul writes back very soon thereafter to clear up some very basic issues that the church may have had with regard to how to live life as Christians. It's also remarkable to me that it did not take them very long before they had established elders in the region of Thessalonica. But the Apostle Paul is giving various instructions about things that they might not have known. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, what the Apostle Paul says is that we, the, those who are the members were to appreciate the leaders that are among them, that are over them in the word of God, and admonish them, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and to be at peace with one another. When you look at what the Apostle Paul says, he is identifying a group of individuals that are leaders. And we'll notice as we walk through our responsibility to them that while he doesn't name them as elders, he is speaking of individuals who have the same work, the same role that elders have in the Lord's church today. But as he begins this instruction, what he is saying is that when you think about the church as a whole, we are made up of a variety of personalities. This doesn't catch God off guard. 
He knows that every congregation is going to have extroverts and introverts. It's going to have people who have stronger personalities and those that are a little bit more passive. He realizes that all of us together make up a body that can function, each one of us, despite our differences, in ways that can help the church to grow, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. And so when you look in this particular context, you see that every congregation is made up of leaders and followers, verse 12 and verse 13. And you'll find that there's also in every congregation those that are strong in faith and those that are weak in faith, according to verse 14 and 15. There are going to be the optimists and the pessimists, verse 16 through 18. And there are going to be the cynical and they are going to be the gullible in verse 19 through 22. And despite that mix of personalities, God expects us to love one another and to get along with one another in the congregation. He highlights that earlier in the letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9 he says, As it concerns brotherly love, you have no need that I should write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9. He says, Wherefore, encourage one another and build one another up, even as you are also doing. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. But as he focuses his attention in verse 12 and 13 on how we as members respond to our leaders... There's a reminder in the background for us that these are individuals whom we have already established in the first and second lesson of this series. Men of character. Men who have to meet certain qualifications. I don't know how many. I was going to count it up before I preached the lesson today. Over 20 elders that I have served under. I think the number is closer to 30. And I suppose that there have been one or two men in that period of time that may have struggled with their character, but most of the men that I have had the pleasure to serve under are men like the Apostle Paul describes here. Men of character. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to interact with them, not just because of who they are individually, but because of the work that they do. You see, God has outlined this work. He is the one who has predetermined that the church to be organized properly is to be led by elders who are in submission to the chief shepherd Christ, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And I want you to interact with them for their work's sake. And so that being the case, there are three responsibilities that we have according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 and 13. First of all, as you can see, we are to appreciate our leaders. Now, depending on the version that you have, it may say appreciate or to know them. There is an assumption that there's going to be a relationship between the sheep and the shepherds. And we mentioned in the qualification lesson and also with regard to the work that the elders have a responsibility to know the sheep, that we have got to do what, that they have got to do what they can in those roles to reach out and to get to know the sheep. You do that through hospitality. You do that by developing relationships with them because sheep will not follow the voice of a stranger. But what I want you to notice here is it's a two-way street. Just as the shepherds are to try to make the attempt to know the sheep, the sheep have got to make an attempt to get to know their shepherds. I don't know, I've had many conversations with men who have been appointed as elders and they'll say, you know, people started treating me differently when I became an elder that I was treated more like a friend or a buddy, but as soon as I was given that responsibility, they kind of distanced themselves from me. They didn't spend as much time socially. May I encourage us to never develop such an arm's length attitude We cannot appreciate our elders if we keep them at a distance and try to stick them off in an ivory tower. 
And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know and appreciate your elders. Don't always wait for them to make the first move. Don't be passive. We, we like to do that in our relationships to let the other person make the first move. So the Apostle Paul would tell us that we need to appreciate them, but also there's the idea of knowing them, acknowledging them. We need to be very careful to ever take the disposition that says, I love Brother A, the elder. He, he is my elder, but Brother B, that's not my elder. You see, if they have been appointed by the congregation, then we don't have that prerogative. Each of those men who have been appointed, the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, and we are to appreciate them. But then there's a second responsibility that we have toward them, and that is that we are to submit to our leaders. You're going to find a very similar language here that you'll find in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. The idea here is to rule over, to direct And so when it comes to those areas that God has given us charge and has given us direction, they are those who will be over us in the Lord. They'll say, this is the direction that we need to go. And you'll also find that their job is to admonish us. That's an unpleasant job. What that means is that there are times where we need gentle correction. In the course that we're going on, individually, maybe even as a church, and elders have the responsibility to admonish us, to turn and change and go the direction that we should go. But when you look at the relationship being such that we are to be in subjection to them, that gives us the idea that they are to be those who lead and to guide and to rule. But there's no subjection if we don't place ourselves willingly under their control. And so the Apostle Paul is encouraging these Christians who are trying to figure out how to be the people of God in the place where they live. He says that I want you to see yourselves as those in subjection to those leaders. But a third thing that he indicates here is that we are to esteem our leaders. There's more than just an acknowledging that these men are the men that are over us in the Lord And there's more than just the idea that we are to be in subjection to them, that there is a role that they play and that we play in respect to one another. But there's to be an esteem, a love that exists between us. When we understand one of the most basic functions of the eldership is that they are to serve as our shepherds, then we understand ourselves as sheep. And never having been an actual literal sheep, I don't know exactly how this goes, but you can watch the behavior and you can see this dependency, this care, this concern, this relationship that exists. The sheep need direction and as such there is an affection, a bond that exists between them that is to strengthen and that is to grow as we go day by day. You know, as we think about the role that the elders have, Hebrews is going to tell us that they're going to give an account. If we understand and appreciate that elders are going to give an account for the work that they do, we're going to give an account for how we respond to the command that God gave us. The command that God gave us is is that we are to esteem our leaders very highly in love for their work's sake. It seems to indicate to me that one day we're going to stand before the chief shepherd And he's going to analyze the way that we have talked to our elders and the way that we have talked about our elders. And he is going to say, you have or you have not esteemed them very highly in love for their work's sake. When we think about what he has told us, 
I want to be able to stand before him and hear him say with regard to what he has told me to do as a sheep in the local congregation, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It has been my observation far too often that sheep have not esteemed their shepherds very highly in love. When we examine the responsibility that we have as sheep to the shepherds, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13 gives us this guidance that we are to know or to appreciate them and as such we are to submit ourselves to their authority, their leadership, and we are to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. But then there's a second passage that we can look to and that's 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. The Apostle Paul is talking about something that it's not as seemingly relevant to us in the 21st century in this specific regard. He says the elders that rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those that labor in preaching and teaching. Now, there, it seems unmistakable that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that there are circumstances that exist where it is legitimate, it's actually good, for a congregation to pay a man to serve as an elder full-time, that he can give himself, devote himself to shepherding full-time, and that's what he means by that saying, a double honor. But I want you to think about what that means. What's one honor? Well, one honor very obviously is that they are to be paid if they do that work in that particular regard. But what's the other honor? That word honor means to value or to hold in high regard. And so what Paul is saying is, is that everyone who serves as an elder deserves that honor. They need to be valued for the very work that they do. They need to be held in high regard. Well, when we think about that particular idea, that thought that we are to, to do that, well, how do we do it? Well, the Apostle Paul, out of that principle, gives us a couple of obligations that we have with regard to those who serve as our elders. The first thing he says is, is that we need to protect their reputation. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19 says that we are not to receive an accusation against an elder except in the presence of two or three witnesses. Well, sometimes we get hung up on what does that mean? Well, it's really not all that complicated the apostle is reflecting on the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, Jesus says if you have a problem with a brother, what you do is you go to them one-on-one -on -one and you try to work that out. And if that doesn't work, then you take two or three witnesses with you that it may be established, that you take those who are going to be neutral and can help you to really get to the bottom line, that is, to correct a sin problem that exists. And if you can't get it taken care of with two or three witnesses, then you are to take it before the entire congregation. And if they don't hear that, you're to reject them as a tax collector or a sinner. And so the idea is that if someone, anyone finds themselves in that place, you follow the Lord's pattern of how to deal with personal offenses. That's why the Apostle Paul says, them that sin rebuke before all, no matter who you are. And so what that tells us is that we are going to treat everyone fairly. We're going to protect our elders. If there is an issue that we may have with them, we're going to follow the Lord's plan for how to deal with those offenses. We're not going to treat them differently because they're an elder and feel like we can circumnavigate, go around God's plan. We're to protect them because of the very difficult work that they do. 
But in, in, and along those lines, we're also to treat them in a fair and impartial way. The Apostle Paul closes this discussion in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21 by saying, I, I adjure you to uh, adhere to these principles in the sight of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and of his chosen angels, that you practice these things without partiality, without a spirit of bias. We're not going to allow an elder to behave in a way that we would not tolerate from any other member. But at the same time, we're not going to treat them unfairly. We're not going to subject them to a higher standard than God and his word does. We're not going to treat them unfairly in a way that we would not treat any other member. We are going to treat them impartially. You see, there's a way that God wants us to treat one another in the body of Christ, in brotherly love, in uh, honor, preferring one another. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. And so Paul gives us further instruction about what our relationship as sheep is to the shepherds. And that is that we are to protect them and we're to treat them in an impartial way. But then third, there's the, what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17. On the one hand, he looks at those that had been their leaders both in the past and in the present. He says, remember those who led you, who taught the word of God to you, and considering their conduct, imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, he says, obey them that have the rule over you. Uh, considering that they are those who give an account and let them do this with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable to you. Again, the Hebrews writer in this general epistle gives us the word leaders instead of the word elders. And it seems here that at least part of the reason why is the Hebrews writers looking over the history of Christianity and how things had been to those he was writing through the years. And there had been a time perhaps when it wasn't just elders who were uh, overseeing them, but it was also the apostles. But all those that led, he says, I want you to think back to how they had led you and what you benefited from their leadership. Think about Lehman Avenue. Now, there are a lot of us who don't have as deep a history, but many of you who have a history that goes back a, a few decades, some of you, it goes back all the way to the very beginning. When you think about the history of this congregation, you realize, as I do, that there are those who, serve, who, who have served as elders who are still members of this congregation. We can well remember their conduct and we should imitate their faith. They led us. They made the sacrifices. They agonized over the problems of the unfaithful and the wayward. They served in this regard and so we remember them. But also, there are individuals who used to serve this congregation as elders who have passed away. Been here over a, little, a little over three years and I have seen brethren who served as elders who have passed away. If you've been here any length of time, you can think back and think of a lot of folks who have passed from the scene of this earth. And you can look back on their life and their conduct. And I've heard so many stories that have been told about elders who have passed away and their faithfulness and we imitate that faith. And it's remarkable that there are still other individuals who serve this congregation as elders who are members of other congregations. They're not passed away and we can still have access to them and we can look at their conduct and we can imitate their faith. Legacy is a wonderful thing. We stand on the shoulders of those who have served faithfully as shepherds in the past and as we look at their work, we want to be appreciative. But then he says, as he shifts his attention to the present, he says, what about those men that are serving now? What is our obligation, our responsibility? I want you to notice in all the things that we see today, 
there's only one principle that's repeated in and among those three passages, and that is the idea that we are to submit and to obey. I wonder why. No, I don't. You don't either. Because we always have a struggle with that, don't we? With those who are in authority over us, it's something that we have to fight, and yet he indicates that we are to submit to their leadership. In the area of judgment... They have got to make some calls that may not be popular. They may not consent with what everybody wants to do. And yet, despite that, we are to submit in the area of judgment. Now, wise elders are going to solicit the opinions of the the members to try to get an understanding of where they are. But when it comes to their directing us and guiding us, when they say that this is the decision that we're going to make as we follow Christ, it's in accordance with His will, we submit, we follow. That's our job. Our role. But there's another thing I want us to notice in this lesson, and that is that we are to allow them to do this with joy and not with grief. This is one that challenges me the most. I suppose if I have been guilty, and I've certainly been guilty of more than one of these, this is the one I've been most guilty of. I suppose that I have caused grief to my shepherds and my leaders throughout time, perhaps because I've not been as submissive as I needed to be for a variety of reasons. But this is a very sobering thing that the Hebrews writer says to us. And for those of you who are football fans, we're in the full throes of the football season now. You may remember something that happened about seven years ago. There was a football game between John Jay and Marble Falls High School. Unremarkable in every way, except that it was in view of a state championship. And Marble Falls was winning, and John Jay had a couple of their best players were ejected from the game. And apparently it was at the behest of the back judge because he's standing there in the last minute of the game uh, behind the play and a couple of defensive players from John Jay come, this defenseless, unprepared referee, and they knock him over. They barely avoid receiving assault charges for that. Well, they were retaliating. They couldn't believe that he had ejected those players in such an important moment. But you think about how referees and umpires, what role they play. They are the ones that are to make sure that order remains. And they're the ones to interpret to make sure that the game is played according to the rules. I mean, it takes a very special group to serve as referees. You wonder why they would even get into that work in the first place. But usually what the case is, is that they can see things better than the folks in the stands. And not only that, they probably know the rules better than that guy up in the stands who just really thinks he would do it a whole lot better and would have made a different call with regard to that. And then I think about elders. You know, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1 is a passage that we need to do all that we can as members to help men who would be able to serve, to qualify, to desire that work. And we can help them to desire that work by the way that we treat the men who are elders, that we treat them with, that, so that they feel joy and not grief. Every eldership is going to face decisions like this. Here is a ministry or a program that's been in existence for a long time, but we're looking at it. It's losing momentum. It's losing uh, support. And, and, and even though people, there are some people who are emotionally invested in this, we're going to have to discontinue that. But that's my baby. That's the thing that I love and have been involved in. But can those resources be, be used in a better way? Or perhaps if they challenge us in a different direction, say, here's a ministry that we need to be involved in. 
You think about the vision process, the strategic planning that we've gone through to try to get us to be more outwardly focused on our community. It challenges us to get out of our comfort zone. We might say, well, I don't want to do that. Sometimes it may be, and certainly in the, in the case of a, a congregation's history, that it, it involves letting go a preacher or hiring a new preacher. It may not be popular with everyone to make various decisions with regard to that. Or how about this one, especially in the environment in which we live? What about church discipline? What about if church discipline is necessary and the elders certainly don't want to do that and they do it in a loving and kind way, a biblical way, in keeping with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in doing that we may say, I don't like that and I wouldn't do it that way. The Hebrews writer says, think about your leaders, those who are over you, who exercise oversight, Acts 20 and verse 28 and 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, who are your overseers. Make sure that they can do their work with joy and not with grief. Don't you know that dealing with those who are struggling in their faith, those who have wandered away, those who maybe used to have been strong, but now for whatever reason there's been an impediment in their spiritual life and now they've fallen away, don't you think that that produces a lot of grief for the men who serve as shepherds? I don't want to add to that unnecessarily. The spiritually mature, according to the writer of Hebrews, Make sure they do it with joy. We don't want to knock them down. Well, maybe in one case, why not out of the blue go up to them and say, I want you to know how much I love you, how much I appreciate you. You can knock them down, but for good. Because they didn't expect it. They didn't see it coming. We want our elders to be able to say with John, in 3 John 3 and verse 4, I have such great joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's bring our elders joy. That's our responsibility as sheep. You know, elders are not supposed to be overworkers. They should not be overmeters. We cannot overpraise them, and they're not overrated. It's interesting that they are given, these extraordinary men, a heavenly task. And as they do that task, they're to do so in conforming with what God's Word says. And so we have looked in two different ways at the work of elders. In the work that they're charged to do, and the men who are qualified to do that work. God doesn't let you and me off the hook. As sheep, we have a responsibility. When we look and see what the passage of Scripture says, we're to appreciate them. Do what you can tangibly to get to know your shepherds better. At at current, there are four of them. And there's a great number of us. And so it's so much easier of a process when we participate in that and reach out and try to build a relationship with them. And as is said in Hebrews 13, we are to submit to their leadership. I know we don't like that in society, but it's a biblical mandate. And to esteem them very highly in love for the work that they do, but also to protect them, to protect them from unfairness, to treat them impartially, and thus let them do that work with joy and not with grief because we function better when that's the approach that we take. God doesn't leave us in the dark to do things the way we think that we ought to do them. He gives us guidance so that we can know how to live the abundant life, the best life we can live here and a life that leads to eternal life, John chapter 10 and verse 10. He's gone to every length to allow that to be the possibility for us. So as it comes to what he's done for us, he gave the Christ who is the one identified as the chief shepherd who was a lamb who who shed his blood in our place. And in response to that, it gives us the opportunity to become his child, to be a part of his kingdom, his church, 
the very church that we're talking about today. It may be that you are ready to make that decision to become a child of God, to respond in faith to Christ's sacrifice and His grace, to repent and be baptized, to have your sins washed away, and maybe as a child of God there's a change you need to make in your life, to rededicate yourself, to repent of sins, or to ask us to pray on your behalf. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.